Welcome once again to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy Podcast. I am Matt Sroka, Clinical Assistant Professor of Literacy at Mercer University. I'm also an Associate Editor for the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy. On this podcast, we talk with authors of journal articles about their work. This podcast delivers current theory, research, and practice in support of effective literacy instruction. And to that end, I'm excited about today's conversation as it brings together two of my personal passions, sports and literacy. We've talked on this podcast a lot about uh, student engagement and finding ways to bring in students' backgrounds and interests and experiences into the classroom to help with literacy development. Well, if we're going to talk about things like student interest and background experiences, it seems like sports could play a significant role in those conversations. And that's what I'll be discussing today with my guest, Luke Rodeseiler, and his article, Controversies, Rivalries, and Representation, Sports Culture as a Site for Research and Inquiry. A link to the article, uh, as well as a link to Dr. Rodeseiler's book that we talked about in the podcast, can be found in the show notes. Luke Rodeseiler, a former high school English teacher, works as an associate professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. His research interests include the role popular cultural texts play in literacy teaching and learning, non-traditional forms of teacher professional development, and English education. He's a co-editor with Alan Brown of Developing Contemporary Literacies Through Sports, the author of Bringing Sports Culture to the English Classroom, and a co-author of Reading the World Through Sports and Young Adult Literature, which will come out later next year. And now to the interview. I'm now happy to be joined on the Journal of Adolescent Adult Literacy podcast by Luke Rodeseiler. Uh, Luke, appreciate you taking the time and joining us here. Can, 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 can we get started by you talking a little bit about your background and how you got interested in sports and literacy? Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate the welcome here. Uh, I'm happy to be joining you today. In terms of my interest in sports and literacy, uh, I guess you have to go back quite a ways. You know, I'll start with the sports piece, I guess, for a moment, you know, uh, all the way back to my youth. You know, I grew up in a household that was pretty um, entrenched in sports culture. You know, I can, from my earliest memories, I can recall playing wiffle ball in the backyard, you know, with my brothers and my my father uh, playing football, uh, going down to Magic Square into the Lila B. Reynolds Elementary School to play basketball. And so that was a common activity for us. But then even within our house, right, our house was littered with all sorts of sports-related texts. You know, I think of the newspaper, for example, right? I grew up in the great state of Michigan. And, you know, we got the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press, and the Hillsdale Daily News. And uh, the sports page was was really sacred, right? My father mm-hmm. always wanted to be the first one to read it before we had a chance to tear it up. And so he'd even hide the thing. Uh, sure. That's how important it was in our household. And um, beyond the newspaper, though, right, we would get magazines, uh, I was really into pro wrestling as a kid, and we'd get Sports Illustrated, Sport, right, this kind of stuff. And it goes beyond the alphabetic text, though, too, right? Like, we would watch movies galore, um, The Karate Kid and Rocky and Hoosiers and, you know, you name it, we watched it. Uh, video games, right? I grew up in the time of the, the NES, right, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And so we'd play Double Dribble, and we'd play Blades of Steel, and we'd play pro wrestling and Mike Tyson's punch out. And so it just seemed like sports that everywhere you turned uh, in my household growing up, uh, it was there. And then in terms of thinking about 
literacy and the connection there, that wasn't something that really, you know, struck me until I, I want to say when I was writing literacy narratives, when I was working in a teacher ed program or perhaps on a master's degree at that point, I don't recall which, but I'm sure reader or listeners are probably familiar with the idea of a literacy narrative, right? Where you, you think back on your engagement in literacy practices or throughout your lifetime. And that was really where I really started to see the connection and the role that sports related texts played in my own upbringing. And from there, you know, as a student in a teacher ed program, I can remember reading pieces by Ernest Morrell and Jeff Wilhelm, Michael W. Smith, where they talked about the role of popular culture in uh, the lives of adolescent youth and the ways that can be brought into the classroom. That really resonated with me, given my own prior experiences. And so then as a classroom teacher, I tried to do the, the same kinds of things. You know, I would, as appropriate, you know, to support my instructional aims, bring in sports-related content as I could whether that's making analogies between, you know, uh, Boo Radley and To Kill a Mockingbird and Rasheed Wallace joining the Pistons after his bad reputation, right, with the, the jailblazers in Portland. Uh, so things like that um, is kind of where it came for me. Yeah, that's cool. And I, a lot of your story resonates with me as well as someone who grew up around sports and still around sports a lot. Uh, and that literacy narrative is interesting. P- part of my dissertation, I did a literacy I had, um, I did it on the kind of the reading habits of English teachers and um, I had them create a literacy identity artifact, which kind of a visual representation of who they are as a, a literacy consumer and person. And I didn't mind kind of the timeline. And I was struck with you. I was struck by all the, the, the power of sports books. Like when I was a kid, I was, um, I, I read Matt Christopher books, which center all around different sports, but I was mostly into all of his baseball sports. Sure. And then I remember in high school, I had actually a Bible teacher in a private school who um, kind of outside of kind of normal teaching, just conversations. He found out I was into baseball and he was super into baseball. And so he recommended David Haberstam and Summer 49 and um, these other books about baseball, Boys of Summer. And I got super into the Red Sox and Joe DiMaggio and the Yankees and this kind of era in the, in the, in the 40s of baseball and thir- in the 30s and 40s. Um, and so I, I resonate with a lot of what, what, what you're saying. Um, and it wasn't until sometimes you kind of look back and realize all the connections to literacy and sports that were existing kind of outside of school, outside of school of, of kind of the traditional school classroom. Well, yeah. And what you shared reminds me too, right? I didn't even mention like reading books, right? About yeah. sports related, you know, but I can recall in my, in addition to playing sports galore right my my parents are really good about taking us to the community library and i can remember checking out books there you know stuff by walter dean myers and crutcher and, and these mm-hmm. kinds of guys robert lipsight was the other and i can remember two reading biographies you know guys like tony dorsett and um you know lou elcinder and these types and i can remember thinking you know why aren't there any detroit lions you know featured in any of these books and then as i got a little older i came to understand well there's not a lot to write about right when it comes <laughs> to the detroit lions but yeah yeah, no, that's that's interesting for and for me too. It became an, a moment too where uh, I think in high school, especially in high school, is when I got into reading a lot of kind of nonfiction books around baseball. And I think at that moment, I I realized that books could be different, right? Like I could read stuff that wasn't just your traditional English classroom stuff, like *To Kill a Mockingbird*, um, but I could read stuff I didn't I didn't even even think right that there would be all these books right aligned with my personal interest in baseball, 
but there was kind of an endless supply of books. And these were not young adult books. These were like adult books. I was reading much above my grade level at that time, but they were in my interest. So I was, I was reading and enjoying them. Sure. And I don't think our stories are unique, right? I think a lot of young people grow up loving sports and around sports. Can you talk a little bit about this um, kind of the role of sports and culture to, today? And then we'll make that link to the classroom. Yeah, you know, this is fresh on my mind. You know, I, I'm coming off the heels of uh, the NCTE annual convention, right, just this past weekend. Mm -hmm. And I had a presentation that, you know, alongside a couple of friends of mine, uh, Mark Lewis and Alan Brown. And, you know, this this business about sports culture and the role of sports and popular culture uh, comes up. And, you know, when I talk about that, I really just really kind of emphasize the, the ubiquitous nature, right, of, of sports culture. It seems like it's just, everywhere you turn. Um, you think about the just straight up high school athletics, right? Um, 8 million or approximately 8 million youth, right? Played organized high school athletics in the 2022-23 academic year, right? And that's a, wow. that's a ton of students. Yeah, That doesn't account for those who might want to play sports, but, but can't, right? Because they, they can't get a ride after school. They've got, you know, family obligations. They don't have the grades, whatever the case may be. Or maybe they're not even all that athletic and they're not interested in playing so much as they're interested just in, you know, uh, being a fan of mm -hmm. sport. And, you know, speaking of fandom, right. You think about things like um, there are a lot of markers that speak to sort of the, the prevalence of sports culture, like um, TV broadcasts, for example, you know, in preparation for that presentation, you know, I learned that 94 of the top 100 television broadcasts in the 2022 calendar year were sports broadcasts. Wow. And then you think about video games, right? And again, doing some research for that presentation, I learned that three of the top 10 video games in 2022 were sports related, right? Your Madden series, your FIFA series, and your MLB The Show. And so it's like even something like video games where you may think, well, you know, if, if someone's an athlete or someone's inclined to sports in that way, maybe they're not is inclined to play video games. And yet there we see it there as well. And then you think, think about something like fantasy sports too, right? Um, again, doing some research for that presentation, I learned there's like 50 million people who play fantasy sports in the U.S. And I'm sure we've all been stuck in conversations with people who play fantasy sports if we don't do ourselves. Uh, so there's that as well. But, but that's just things that people choose to do, right? We can also think about things that uh, people don't seek out and yet still encounter in the sports world, right? Think about advertising. I mean, everywhere you turn, right, you're getting uh, inundated with, with athletes who are pushing some kind of product, whether it's Serena Williams pushing Lincolns or it's Joe Burrow pushing Bose headphones or it's, you know, um, Steph Curry pushing Subway sandwiches or Travis Kelsey pushing a vaccination, whatever the case may be. If you got a product or right, an athlete can sell that for you. And, and why athletes? Well, they're, they're everywhere, right? And people, people tune in to, to sport. And then we think about fashion, right? Fashion too is a great influencer, I think, in, in popular culture. You know, I talked a little bit about my youth earlier and, you know, I grew up in a house where, uh, you know, the Michigan State Spartans, you know, were, were the, the big ticket. But, you know, when I was in junior high, there were five freshmen showing up at University of Michigan, right, who changed fashion, right, with the baggy shorts and the black socks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I certainly, having grown up at that time, I'm grateful uh, for that, right, going away from the short shorts, right, to the baggy <laughs> shorts, uh, I was certainly grateful for that. So I think, you know, those are great indicators. And you can also consider everyday language, right? Everyday language 
you know, if we're talking about successes, right, we talk about hitting it out of the park. If we talk about mm -hmm. failures, we talk about dropping the ball. Uh, if we talk about uh, persevering, right, we talk about going the distance. If we talk about giving up, we talk about throwing in the towel. Mm -hmm. And so you, sports, again, just seems to seep into everything that we do. Yeah, it's true. And yeah, I was going back to my memories were in N1 shorts, baggy N1 shorts and N1 shoes and N1 everything. And 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 then there's element two of, and I, I think this has become even more prevalent over the past maybe 10, 20 years. I don't know if you looked at this at all, but I, I have a son who's six and I remember he plays baseball and he just played fall ball this past fall. And um, one of the coaches approached us at the end of the season saying, listen, you should consider uh, travel ball for your son. And I was like, the kid's six, what are you talking about? But yeah. I have a lot of friends who are have young kids or teenagers and travel ball has become this kind of all-consuming where if you have a kid who's into a sport, this is a year-round kind of every weekend um, kind of family-consuming event uh, yeah. as, as sports is. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's really kind of mind-blowing if you think about it, all the ways that sports have seeped into kind of every aspect of our culture. So let's so 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 now let's talk about the classroom because and you you hinted at this before but there's there's a lot of research showing um, about kind of funds of knowledge and about what students are doing at home and how at, at at the classroom we should be making these connections right between what they're learning at home and kind of building off their home literacies and making connections into the classroom. Um, I'm just curious in your kind of research and observations. Um, what it, what 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 have you observed as far as what's happening in classrooms in terms of sports? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time for this this you know paper that we're talking about here today uh, in classrooms, right? And certainly, sports were featured prominently in a, in a formal way, but they also showed themselves in informal ways as well. You know, um, I'm thinking of just even something as basic as relationship building, right, with mm -hmm. teachers and students. Uh, one of the quickest ways, right, to, to get to know students is to talk about their interests, right? If it happens to be sport, if they play a sport, then we can we can look at that. And it may be, too, that they don't play, but they're fans, right? And so then, again, you can chat them up about, you know, what's going on with their favorite team, that kind of thing. So I saw a lot of that, you know, when I was observing. But then in a more formal sense in the classroom, again, as you said, kind of tapping into students' funds and knowledge, right? The interests and experiences they bring to the table. You know, I think about I think about some of the scholarship that I've encountered, right? Um, beyond my own, I think about something like um, Marchetti and Odell have a book called uh, Beyond Literary Analysis. And they argue that when teaching writing and teaching students to, to write analyses, that it really requires passion and authority right to write a good analysis and the argument then is that students come to the table with all sorts of passion for sports right not all students of course but many students and they come to the table with a great deal of authority as well based on their years of experience you know as athletes or as fans or watching game after game or playing in game after game and so that's something that comes to mind for me and then too i think about you know, literature instruction and, and the work of Chris Crow comes to mind for me. Uh, Chris Crow uh, had a book from 2004, I want to say, that is all about sports-related young adult literature and recognizing that those stories, you know, are not just about X's and O's or 
in wins and losses, but rather about the entanglements that youth find themselves engaged in uh, in the arena and out. And those are things that uh, I often recommend folks to take a look at when they think about how they bring sports into the classroom. Yeah, I I love that idea of, of passion and authority. I haven't heard it put that way. Um, I know uh, Peter Smagrinsky writes a lot about kind of academic BSing in writing. And yeah. one of the ways that's produced is because it lacks passion or authority, right? So you end up just kind of BSing your way through a paper. But often in, in, in classrooms, we ask students to, you know, write an essay on a book they kind of read or maybe didn't read, but just kind of listened in class. And then we ask them to be this authority figure on this paper, on this book that they barely read and barely understood, but they're supposed to pretend and embrace yeah. this identity that they're an expert on the topic. And it, it doesn't make for quality work often. And so all of a sudden, if you already have a starting point where they're choosing their own topic, they're passionate about the whatever sport-related topic that they're writing about, and they have a lot more background knowledge than they would on another type of text. Um, uh, so that you're already, they're already coming, like, like, like you said, with some background knowledge. They're more likely to write in a way that's not BSing, in a way that's honest, and in a way that um, reflects their accurate understanding of something. Um, this leads in your, in your article, Controversies, Rivalries, and Representation, Sports Culture as a Site for Research and Inquiry. And I'll remind listeners, you can um, find the, a link to the article in the show notes. I'll encourage you guys to take a look at it. Um, you talk about this idea of how sports can encourage research and inquiry in the classroom. Um, and is that kind of what you mean? Because it can, they bring with them this passion and authority. Um, and there's so many, I would imagine, so many topics you can explore within the realm of sports. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a starting point, certainly, right? I think early in the piece, I, I'm I'm citing um, someone that escapes me now uh, who I cited, but I recall essentially the argument that the person I cited makes is that, uh, you know, inquiry is really grounded in authentic curiosity. Yeah, Donham is who you cited, because I, I circled that when I was reading your... Uh, Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate the assist, right? To stick with the sport. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Keep those sports metaphors coming. Yeah. So, you know, and so I think, yeah, I, I think for many students, right, there is a curiosity about sports, right? It's a, even beyond curious, curious, right? They're eager, passionate, uh, want to know more, right? And so that's, I think, a great starting point. But even beyond that, right, if you think about, you know, sports culture as a reflection of our global society, I think that then means that sports culture is ripe for supporting contemporary issues research, like that which Brad, uh, one of the participants in the study, um, facilitated among his students, where they were looking at uh, controversial topics, right, uh, in um, the contemporary sports world. You know, and of course, sports culture has a rich history. And so it's ripe for the kinds of historical analyses that Jake facilitated in his classroom, right, where he had students looking at the history of sports rivalries. And then, of course, sports media is abundant, as we've talked about here throughout this conversation. And so sports culture really supports the kinds of media analyses that uh, Colleen facilitated in her classroom, right, where she had students looking at Sports Illustrated covers and considering how women are or are not represented in those covers. And so I think in all those ways, right, sports culture can encourage and support research and inquiry in the classroom. Yeah, and almost across di 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 disciplines, right? Like if you want to explore some kind of, and then you mentioned this in your paper, some with looking at geography or history, you can explore that aspect of, of sport. If you want to look at more contemporary political issues, you can look at 
contemporary political issues happening in sport that happen all the time. And so it, it almost lends itself to, to kind of whatever subject you're teaching or whatever kind of subject students are interested in. There's so much flexibility in, in where you want to take that, that, that research. Um, your article focused, though, on a sports literature class, um, though it seems like just from what you just said, that this is not limited to sports literature class, right? Like these are ideas we can bring into to a lot of classrooms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, certainly not limited to a sports literature classroom. You know, uh, it's interesting. It's the sports literature classroom. I, when I was teaching high school English, I never it never dawned on me the idea of teaching a class that's strictly focused on sports related content. Despite me being such a big fan and, and consuming so much of it as a youth and even as an adult. And so when I I discovered right, this thing here, the sports literature classroom in the secondary level, I was really fascinated about what's possible there, right? Mm-hmm. And so I chose that as my setting because I was likely to see right this kind of work happening there. But uh, no doubt, right? You don't you don't have to be teaching a sports literature class strictly in order to you know, honor students' interest in passion for sports. And I think my own classroom when I was a high school teacher is a good reflection of that. You know, um, I would work it in as it as it was appropriate, right? And depending on the students I was working with, you know, I happened to work in a community where sports was, was huge, right? Uh, obviously not 100% of the population engaged in sports, but, but many did. And if they didn't, they at least were plugged into popular culture, right, where they could understand references we were talking about, you know, and I often think of something like teaching satire, I think was a great way where I would oftentimes lean into that sports piece because, you know, if students know the topic or the person that's being skewered, right, in a satiric piece, then we can just jump right into the the techniques that are being employed, right? I don't have to explain sort of the background here and what's really happening here. Why is this person being skewered and all of that, right? So, I can remember at the time using a piece, you know, I'm teaching there in like the mid 2000s and I'm using a piece like Kobe Bryant mourns passing of ball. And it's a very basic concept, right? That students immediately get, right? If they know Kobe Bryant and they recognize, you know, his propensity for shooting the ball himself, right? uh, All the time. And so that I think is a very basic example of the ways in which you can weave sports culture into, you know, support student learning. Yeah, I I always went back to when, when teaching how to write an essay and a thesis statement and a claim and arguments. And I, I would always draw upon Michael Jordan. Like, let's start with the claim that he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And then let's develop, okay, what, what evidence do we have for that? How can we take that evidence and form it into, into separate arguments? Then I had to update it to get, say LeBron James instead of Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, sure, sure. Order. Um, but it's, it's true. And, and I think, and, and I know we're focused mostly on kind of the, the, the literacy portion of it. Um, but the research and the inquiry, I, I, I think that applies um, certainly in English classrooms um, in the examples that we're talking about. But I was thinking about also, also in, in math, and we've had the, I feel like the recent rise over the past 10 to 15 years of the role of analytics and the role of math, starting with money ball, but then continuing into, into not just baseball, but football and basketball and all these sports, where... Um, I have a colleague who's a math teacher, um, a good friend who doesn't like sports at all, but she's joined a paper and wrote a paper on how they do NFL rankings and how to kind of bring more objective data into these rankings to, uh, to, 
to, to make them clear. And I think there's almost endless possibilities in terms of, of ways that math can also be embedded into in, 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 uh, in the sports in a way that increases math interest and in a way that achieves kind of the, the standards, but also does in a more in a way that kind of connects with students' interests more. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be any kind of math uh, educator, right, of, of any kind. But uh, I think as long as, you know, teachers hold on to that idea that um, students come to the table, right, with a wealth of knowledge and experience, mm-hmm. you know, um, literacy engagement, uh, learning engagement, right, around um, various aspects of, of, of culture, right, popular culture, sports culture, whatever it may be. Uh, and you kind of start there with that idea in mind and, and sort of take it from a sort of an asset based perspective and kind of build upon what students are bringing to the table, then, yeah, I think that you can certainly design instruction that, that starts with what's closer to home for students and then gradually work to things that are farther from home for students. Yeah, it's that um, a piece that's often missing in schools is that engagement piece, right, where, where kids aren't just engaged with the material. I, I, like I mentioned, I have a six-year-old son, and he's super into baseball, and we do word problems on the weekend, and I'll write these word problems like, just basic math and subtraction problems like, you know, uh, we're Baltimore Orioles from, I'm from Maryland, so we're Baltimore Orioles fans. And we'll, and we'll, we'll do something like, uh, I'll write a word problem for Silas and be like, if the Orioles play a three-game series, they score a total of 30 runs, they scored seven runs the first game, 12 runs the second game, how many runs did they score the third game? And so I do all these types of word problems with them. And he's not super into math, but he loves the word problems yeah. because he loves to see all the connections sure. to, 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 to sports. And so I think, I think there's value in not just t- teaching the material sometimes, but also finding ways to engage and help them to enjoy doing the problems. Um, Absolutely. What about, uh, Luke, how do we approach students who are teachers who aren't into sports? Maybe they don't like all the sports metaphors. <laughs> Some of them go over their head. Yeah. Um, if we're if we want to kind of bring sports into the classroom, what about the students who don't like sports or teachers who don't like sports? Yeah, you know that's uh, as I've taken up this line of research, right? I have ine- inevitably faced this kind of question, right? People want to say, well, not everybody likes sports. Yeah. And to that, I say, you're right, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, and. I like to call back to a line that you'd mentioned Peter Smagarinsky previously. Mm-hmm. And Peter was kind enough to write the foreword for a book uh, that I edited alongside my friend and colleague, Alan Brown, called Developing Contemporary Literacies Through Sports, a guide for the English classroom that was published by NCTE back in 2016. And he's got this line in the book where he writes, sports may not appeal to each and every teen, but then neither does any other topic. And so that brought me great comfort, right, to, to know that, yeah, okay. Um, so sports doesn't appeal to everyone. No problem, right? Neither does anything else for that matter. But I'm also reminded of the work of uh, Jeff Wilhelm and uh, Michael W. Smith. And, you know, they wrote Reading No Picks, No Chevys. And yep. there's a um, story that's, that Wilhelm shares about teaching death of a salesman. and structuring the unit around this idea of the emphasis, like what happens when we place too much emphasis on competition and sports, right? And he talked about the ways in which that engaged those who are really into sport, right? Because 
well, yeah, they want to talk about sports and why it's so important and why we should be emphasizing competition and, and this kind of thing. But then he said it also appealed to those students who weren't interested in sports because they thought there was too much emphasis in their school on sports. Mm. And so in that way, right, you're pulling everybody. You're, you're creating room for everyone to come to the table, regardless of what perspective they have on sports, where they stand on it. And still being able to achieve your aims, right, when it comes to instruction, right? And that's a great reminder for me too, right, that there is room here for, for everyone. And what I think too about taking a critical approach to sports culture, right, to really think about issues of power, privilege, and marginalization in sports culture, I think that, yeah, maybe sports itself doesn't appeal to folks, but maybe that critical lens isn't in for folks, right, where we can kind of look at what's going on here and how can we do something better than what's happening here in sports culture. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that that's that that's well said. And there's, yeah, that critical piece is is interesting because there's even within a school dynamic, right? Like with, there's sports are often privileged. Some sports are privileged over other sports. Uh, I, I I don't know. I like I think this maybe also calls for maybe a broadening definition of sports, and <laughs> that's another kind of topic to 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 be discussed. But a, a more kind of inclusive definition of what we mean mean by sports to involve more students. Well, yeah, to that point, right, going back to the Wilhelm story, what he shares in there, right, is that, you know, some of those students who weren't all about, you know, rah-rah sports, they were, you know, they wrote proposals to change the focus of homecoming, right, to broaden it, make it more inclusive beyond just, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to center the football team or whatever it may be. And so I think, yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And what what I want to ask you about this, there's, there seems to be, and maybe this is my own bias, but it seems to be this perception that some people hold in terms of academic work being kind of this rigorous work and then sports being more play and fun. And when you bring sports in, you lessen the rigor. Have you heard this argument? Am I making this up? Um, And how would you respond to some people who'd say, well, if you're you're just talking about sports, that's something they're doing at home and we want kind of more rigorous academic work in school. Yeah, I I think whenever I hear rigor, right, I often go back to I guess it's another sport analogy, right? And I, I forget, you know, I want to attribute this to somebody, maybe like a Penny Kittle or someone like this, uh, where I heard them sort of liken it to lifting weights, right? It's it's not, mm-hmm. I mean, the rigor is not in the weight itself. It's about what you do with the weight that really is is where the rigor resides. And so I think the same is true with, with text, right? Whether you're reading a sports-related text or anything else, right? What is it you're doing with that text, I think, is what really gets at the, the rigor piece, right? Are you you know, exploring it, right, to promote and teach for critical literacy. So you're exploring issues of power, privilege, and marginalization in the text and the ways in which the text either upholds or upends power relations. Uh, Or are you just, you know, um, considering plot, you know, whatever it may be. And so I think when it comes to rigor, that's kind of where my, my thinking tends to go. Yeah, that's a great point. I think about in my own classroom how sometimes I would use sports not as something serious but like as okay we have five minutes of the class let's do this fun sports kahoot just as a way to kind of take a break and be fun and engaging um but there's but 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 just like we would take a break and do other fun things you can also apply apply rigor to those things depending on what you're having students do with that activity um yeah i think that's really good so let's say you are a teacher out there teachers listen to this um, they feel whatever about sports, uh, but but they recognize that this is 
a potential area of value, right? A potential area to engage students, a potential area to kind of meet students where they are, a potential area to get students really kind of engaging more with, with whatever the content is that they're doing in the classroom. In general, what advice would you kind of offer teachers to start bringing more sports into the classroom? Hmm. I think my first bit of advice, uh, and this goes really for most things, uh, would be to start small, right? And kind of think about based on what you're already doing, based on your context, right? Based on your curriculum, based on student interest, student need, you know, where might you be able to squeeze something in? And maybe that's, you know, a sports-related poem. Maybe that's a short story. Maybe that's, um, you know, supplementing some, you know, unit you've got about um, whatever the case may be, right? But just start small and, and go from there. I wouldn't dive in to create an entire unit right away or maybe wouldn't begin with trying to create a whole class that's sports focused, but instead start small. And of course, know why you're doing what you're doing, right? And we're not just bringing sports in because, hey, I, I want to you know, bring sports in, but rather I'm going to be intentional and purposeful about what I'm doing with this. Uh, that's what I would recommend to begin. Um, yeah, maybe that. It depends. I think uh, uh, I would always start my year with a pretty extensive survey of students, right, of, of gauging their interests, wh- what their passion is about. And I have some directly, like, do you like reading and writing? But then some, like, like what are your hobbies outside of school? What, what are your interests outside of school? And, and I would imagine, and, and from my experience, a, a large portion of those hobbies are somehow connected to, 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 to sports. And so I think already as you get to know your students and you can kind of find their interest. And if it's basketball, if it's football, if it's just general sport interest, that could also be a good starting point to f- then find, I think it, that start small is great advice. Then you could find, you know, a short story where the main character plays basketball or something um, as, as a way to, to kind of get into, because especially in English with reading, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at character development, if you're looking at theme, so many texts to choose from, right? And so, yeah especially with the smaller texts that aren't anchor texts that you're not required to teach, there's so much flexibility there. So even incorporating one short story, I think as that, that connects with students' interests is a, is a great way to go about it. The other thing I guess I'd recommend too for folks is, you know, to, to not fret about needing to be the expert on all things sport, right? I think I talked to some folks who are like, well, I don't even like sports. Like how, how do I bring this into the classroom? And, you know, to that, I, you know, I previously had, had referenced uh, Smagorinsky. Um, we're talking about students maybe not be interested, not being interested in sports, but Ernest Morell's got this line in his book, um, Linking Illiteracy and Popular Culture, I think is the one, where he he says many of the texts that will have the most positive impact on students are the ones that teachers would not normally choose for themselves. Mm. And I think that's an important idea to keep in mind too, right? As you think about getting started, is you don't have to be the expert here on these things, right? You can open up the floor to students and, and kind of take their recommendations, and their suggestions and, and uh, help let them help you figure out kind of where do we go from here and how do we bring this into, uh, into the conversation, right? So for example, if you're teaching compare and contrast essays, right? Well, okay, let's, let's maybe tap into what students know about, as you get the great idea of, of arguing that Michael Jordan's the greatest at, you know, basketball player or LeBron James. And I think Smagorinsky has written in the past, you know, about using, comparing basketball players right which is the better player mm-hmm. and you got to come up with those criteria about what makes a great basketball player and mm-hmm. you know what how does each one meet those criteria or not and you can draw from students knowledge of those 
you know, those athletes to, to do that kind of thing. And so uh, that's another bit I would offer as well. Yeah, that's, that's kind of been a recurring theme in this podcast, this idea of at, at times teachers need to be okay and embrace kind of some uncertainty and they don't have to be the expert in everything. We talked a lot about this in relation to digital tools, right? Well, what if I don't, I, should I use this new di- digital tool if I'm not an expert on it? Um, but it's okay to have students kind of struggle and figure it out. And it's okay for students to teach you about things. And in fact, I think that's where you need to talk about student-centered classrooms, um, talk about kind of taking you off the pedestal and, 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 and you becoming kind of more of a mentor and coach. I guess students love to, to, to share with you things that maybe you don't know, right? And there's something, and I always tell this to students, that there are things that you guys know more about than, than me, right? Like they're, whatever it is, whether it's sports, whether it's music, like there's something that each of you knows a lot more about than I do. I'm just happen to be teaching you English. So, and I've read more books than you probably, but so I know more about this because I've been doing it for a while, but there are things that you know more than, than me about. And students get excited. Students get, they get excited to, to share things um, with you and to be the expert. And that's, that's what we want students to do, right? We want them to feel good. We want them to feel like they, like they are the expert, that they, they feel good and, they, and that they want to kind of share this information. I think that's where good learning happens as opposed to, okay, let me just kind of mimic what my teacher wants me to say or write or do. Yeah, for sure. You know, and sticking with this idea of advice, right? Um, I would also encourage folks to capitalize on the resources that are available, right? There's, you know, recent years has been a, a kind of a, a growth of, of resources around this issue of the ways in which we can use sports culture to support, you know, literacy, teaching, and learning. And there's a text by uh, Kathy Garland and a number of others, uh, Katie Dredger, Crystal Beach, uh, Kathy Leo Grand. It's called Stories of Sports. And it's it's really uh, a valuable text in terms of thinking about sports media and how we can teach for critical media literacy. And so that's what I would recommend uh, listeners check out if they haven't seen that already. And yeah. Um, there have been other um, journals that have done entire issues dedicated to it, right? So there's one from, I want to say, around 2014 or so, English Journal issue. The Allen Review had, a, had an issue that was dedicated to the topic. Signal Journal, I think, is another in recent years has done that, uh, as well as Study and Scrutiny, if you're familiar with that journal. It's an open uh, access online journal. Well, I'm glad to hear that there's a lot of other work in this field because when I was reading your article, I was thinking, man, this is <laughs> like, well, why haven't I read more about this? Because this is yeah. something that seems like such an obvious connection. And there's so much talk about, again, uh, c- c- connecting students' backgrounds and experiences with what you're doing in the classroom. And this seems like such an obvious connection to make. Um, and, and you wish more people would make it at, at, for no other reason. And, and we're talking about ways to kind of formally put it into a classroom and to you know, encourage critical inquiry through sports. But like, if for no other reason, just relationship building, right? Like I moved uh, a year and a half ago, I moved here to, to Macon, Georgia, where college football is a big deal. It's the, no one cares about college football in Maryland. Uh, we care about our NFL team. We care about our baseball team. We don't care about college football. But here, everyone cares about college football. So I even find myself, even just like for social reasons, having to like keep up on the Georgia Bulldogs and pretend like I care about the Georgia Bulldogs for, for, for social reasons. And I feel like that's so true in the classroom too, right? Like even just making references to having watched the game last weekend is just a great opportunity to to connect with students and build those relationships. And then, you know, we, we the research, we know the importance, right, of building relationships with, with, with students. 
and how, how that can open up opportunities uh, when you get to, to some of the other classroom academic work. So Luke, for you, um, what are you, I mean, this, this article is, is, was written in what, in 2021, a couple of years now. Um, I'm curious, uh, what have you been up to? Are, are you continuing this work with um, sports and literacy or are you exploring di different avenues? What, what have you been up to and what are you getting into now? Yeah, I uh, appreciate the question there. So this, this article here um, was part of a larger project that ultimately ended up uh, being a book called Bringing Sports Culture to the English Classroom and an Interest-Driven Approach to Literacy Instruction that was published by Teachers College Press in uh, the fall of 2022. Oh, nice. Congrats on the book. What has been, I'm just curious, what has been your reaction? What has been some of the reaction to the book? Uh, it's largely been positive. You know, I assume people wouldn't reach out if they had something negative to say. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, um, I just... I was really happy to be able to showcase the work that these teachers are doing. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, each of them brings a different um, skill set to the table in terms of, you know, the angles they're taking and engaging students uh, in sports. Uh, so it, it involves the three participants that are featured in the article and it also involves a, a fourth participant, uh, someone whose classroom I visited in 2021. Of course, you'll recognize that was in the midst of COVID. And so I was joining that classroom virtually. Uh, but there was great work happening there as well. And so the book accounts for each classroom I was in, as well as, you know, an introduction and a conclusion. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that, that was a piece I was happy to put out into the world. Yeah, it's really cool. And I can just imagine, based on just this article, where you kind of provide three different kind of ways to use sports to, to do this critical inquiry and, and research, I would imagine your book is full of, of many other examples of ways to use sports in the classroom. Yeah, it's, certainly it's not limited to research and inquiry, right? It goes well beyond that. Right. Uh, it's the kinds of texts that they're using uh, and then far beyond for sure. Cool. So since then, though, uh, I have worked on some other projects as well. I'm happy to, uh, I guess, this is sort of an announcement, I guess, that um, colleagues of mine, Mark Lewis, Alan Brown, and I, we've been working on a project that is going to result in a book that's scheduled for release in the spring of 2024. That's called Reading the World Through Sports and Young Adult Literature, Resources for the English Classroom, and that comes from NCTE. Oh, I love that. Reading the World Through Young Adult Literature. Oh, I'm, yeah, as someone who loves young, young adult literature and loves sports, I'm so intrigued. <laughs> yeah, so, so what we do then in that book is we consider, you know, how can we support teachers in teaching for critical literacy, you know, using uh, content from sports culture and sports-related young adult literature. And so each chapter, you know, beyond the intro and conclusion are dedicated to specific texts and specific issues. And yeah, I think it's, I'm excited to get that out into the world. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the Wilhelm study you mentioned before, the book, uh, Reading Don't Fix No Shabbies. Uh, the, the, this idea of there's, uh, as particularly boys, right, who are often are reluctant readers in, in the classroom. And part of the reason the reluctance exists is because they're they don't see themselves in the literature they don't find the literature engaging and i think right now there's so much quality young adult literature um that deals that connects with sports and also other issues i i know one of the books i had the most success with i don't know if you mentioned this book in your in your book but one of the books i had the most success with teaching is all american boys um and that was a great book that also that dealt with kind of critical issues around race but also had the backdrop of of sports um and athletic in, in it as well. 
And so, I, and that book kind of reluctant readers who would normally, some of my boys who normally would not pick up a book, I'd always kind of sneak back to, 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 to them. And I had a lot of success with it. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's good stuff. And and that's one of the books that's featured in, in a chapter. So. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 And then more recently, Mark Lewis, a gentleman I mentioned a couple of times, a friend and colleague of mine, we collaborate on quite a bit. Uh, he and I are currently working on a research project uh, that engages youth in local schools uh, with sports-related young adult literature in an after-school book club. And so we are talking with them about the, the issues that, that they see cropping up and kind of the meaning they take from these stories and uh, thinking about what that might mean for uh, incorporating these kinds of stories into the classroom. You know, and that, that project really came at least from, from my end, uh, out of the fact that in studying those sports literature classes, I found that, you know, the involvement of sports related young adult literature was very minimal, oftentimes just incorporated as choice reading and, and little more than that. And so um, we wanted to see, well, what do you say about sports related young adult literature and hear from them directly? So uh, that's a in progress uh, project right now as well. Yeah, oh, and that and that goes with my uh, something that bothers me sometimes is young adult literature, contemporary young adult literature is often pushed to just choice or just independent reading, which I think in some ways the students are perceived that, that kind of less value and diminished uh, value, which is not true. I mean, the, the great thing about young, young adult literature, I think contemporary young, young adult literature is just like All American Boys is a good example. There's so many kind of current issues, right, that students are facing. And young adult literature is very responsive to issues facing young people and issues facing society at large. They're very responsive to, 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 to that in a way that some of the canonical works just are unable to be, right, because uh, of when they were written and who they're written by. And so here's a great opportunity to, to get, kind of talk about contemporary issues through the lens of these high interest young adult texts. I think it's, yeah, I think it's great. I think we need more of it in, 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 in schools. Luke, you're busy. <laughs> yes, staying busy for sure. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, well, Luke, I appreciate you taking time on your busy schedule to to spend some time and talk to talk about your work. Uh, so, thank you. It's been a really fun conversation. Yeah, I, I appreciate the interest in the work, uh, and it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you more about it.